Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Simon Longstaff. I'm the Executive Director of St James Ethics Centre and more attached to this place, the co-curator of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which will be held as it is each year in the first weekend of October. Our speaker tonight uh, is the Ira de Camp Professor of Bioethics at uh, Princeton University and also Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. But Peter Singer, I think, uh, to everybody in this room, uh, needs very little introduction. He is uh, a world-renowned philosopher, uh, one of the great Australian philosophers in a tradition that hasn't had that many names to whom you could attach that appellation. One of those people whose uh, thinking has uh, translated into a change in sentiment across the world. Uh, not just in the area of animal liberation, about which he wrote most famously decades ago, but more generally in a range of areas where he has applied his mind, always daring to think in ways uh, that were consistent with his overall philosophical position, irrespective of the consequences of doing so for himself. And sometimes the consequences have been uh, very difficult. I've known Peter for a number of years and, and admired him greatly, uh, not just because of the quality of the work that he produces, but I suppose more particularly uh, because he is one of those people of such considerable moral courage that he actually lives uh, to the greatest extent possible, consistently with the views that he articulates in his writing and in, in his thinking. So it's a real privilege for us, I think, to have a man of his stature and convictions uh, here in Australia and now operating uh, overseas. He spends about half the year there uh, each year. And so I wonder if you would join with me in uh, welcoming Peter Singer to the Opera House and to this gathering where he'll be talking about ethics and the online world. Please welcome <laughs> Professor Peter Singer. Thank you very much, Simon, for that uh, welcome. It's good to be back in Sydney and speaking here at the Opera House particularly. Don't worry, I'm not going to show you a PowerPoint. I am just uh, have my notes here, so I'm going to be relying on them. I've actually been in, um, in New South Wales for a, a few days now because we have a daughter who moved up to Sydney a little while ago. And so my wife came up with me and we spent some time with her in the Blue Mountains. Um, she asked me what I was going to be talking about at the Opera House, and I said uh, about the internet, she said, oh, your great love. Well, since my wife was with me, I felt obliged to deny that this was the case. <laughs> and, uh, but she said, uh, look, um, firstly, you spend more time on the internet than you do with her, and secondly, you believe the internet more than you do her, <laughs> because um, we'd, we'd had a little disagreement about some fact, and I had said, I'm going to go and Google that. Um, <laughs> So I'm not so sure about the time, but I guess it maybe depends if you count waking hours uh, only. But certainly, um, uh, you know, I think if I actually analyse the amount of time I spend online, it would be a substantial part of what I do because it is an amazing tool for all sorts of things, including, obviously, communication and research. So that a lot of my research in recent years has been carried out online and has made things so much easier and so much faster as compared with the days when you would have had to go to the library and wait for them to get some 
documents in and uh, then try and find them in the dusty stacks and pull them out and read them and so on. Um, it's a, really an amazing aid. But is it um, more than just a useful tool? About uh, a century and a half ago, Karl Marx um, gave a one-sentence summary of his theory of history, which went like this. The handmill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. What would he have said the internet gives you? The idea is that technology changes, not just the technology itself, not just the things we immediately do with it, but many other things as well. And that's, you know, no doubt Marx overstated the thesis, but um, it was, I think, a great insight into the way in which the technologies we have are interwoven with a lot of other aspects of our society. So I want to talk about that. Um, and obviously I can only talk about uh, a small part of that. The internet changes the world, at least in, in one obvious way, because it crosses all kinds of boundaries that um, otherwise would exist. Uh, it crosses national boundaries and it enables people to connect very easily, very simply, uh, across those national boundaries and in, in different countries. So it brings us closer to the idea of uh, one world. To take the title of a book I wrote a decade or so ago, um, it really does help to make the place more uh, one world. I just sort of mentioned briefly a few of the, the ways in which uh, it changes things, um, and then I'll come to speak about a, a couple in a bit more depth. So obviously, um, I already said, it, it makes research a lot easier. It also makes it um, a lot easier for us to work together with, with people far apart. When I started working as an academic in Australia um, back in the 1970s, um, it wasn't easy to collaborate with colleagues in other countries. To write a paper together, for example, um, meant uh, typing out drafts and mailing them to each other. Um, later on, admittedly, you could have done uh, faxes, so it would have gone a bit quicker, but it still wasn't, wasn't that easy. Um, now it's really as easy for me to work with a colleague in Europe or uh, elsewhere in the United States as it is to work with someone whose office is just down the hall. Because probably in either case, um, we're going to be working on a, uh, an electronic document and changing that and emailing it to each other, and it really doesn't make any difference uh, whether we're close or not. And if we want to discuss something, um, then even that has now become uh, as easy, really, as, as if you're next door, because you can uh, use Skype to uh, talk and see each other, and um, uh, there's no cost uh, to that. So um, that kind of communication has really become um, extremely close. And obviously people use that for a lot of other purposes as well, including things like playing games with people on the other side of the world um, and getting to know people because they're part of a body that likes to play the kinds of games that you do. Um, in terms of information, as I've mentioned, we can access information online. We can read books that are in libraries in, in other countries. Um, we can find out how long it would take to walk from, if we have a friend in, in London, how long it would take them to walk to visit uh, another friend or, um, or, or a university or an institution um, as, as easily as they can. We can uh, know what the weather is like that, uh, that they're having. 
Um, I've even been in a situation where somebody in Poland has emailed me and saying, said, are you going to the lecture by so-and-so at Princeton, when I'm in Princeton, at Princeton this afternoon? And I've said, what lecture is that? Um, because um, she's been more aware of uh, the calendar of events that's on the university website um, than I have. Uh, and, uh, of course, we can um, create new works online. I think one of the marvels of the Internet is Wikipedia. It's an encyclopedia of a sort that has never existed before, far more wide-ranging than the Encyclopedia Britannica or any of those other documents ever was. Um, maybe not quite as reliable, um, but basically surprisingly reliable, given the ease with which anyone can go online and change entries. Um, it's remarkable how quickly, if somebody does change them in a malicious or misleading way, it's remarkable how quickly they usually um, get changed back again. Um, and uh, we can do scientific work that involves a vast number of people now in a way that we couldn't, so that there are projects in astronomy, for example, that uh, enlist volunteers online to look at images of the sky uh, captured through telescopes that would take a long time and a lot of money if you employed scientists to do it, but you can rapidly train people in doing it and in feeding back useful information. There's also, I discovered um, only quite recently when I attended a, a conference, um, you can actually read unpublished manuscripts by Jeremy Bentham, the founding father of utilitarianism, um, online that have never really been studied or transcribed by anyone else. In fact, um, Jeremy Bentham left something like 60,000 pages of manuscript, which scholars have only, have only published less than half of, and um, not only have they not published it, some of it has not even really been properly read because his handwriting, especially as he got older, becomes quite difficult to read. So this uh, Bentham project, um, you can find it online, I think, if you Google transcribe Bentham, is inviting people to uh, look at the documents that they've scanned in and put online and transcribe them, type them out, so that it will be easier for everybody else to read them. So you can really have the feeling that you're reading Bentham's original manuscript um, that may not have been read since he left it in his death, uh, at his death um, a couple of hundred years ago. Um, then, of course, there are the ways in which the Internet produces a vastly larger community than you could possibly have without it and therefore enables people with um, unusual interests or particular conditions, let's say a rare medical condition, to find other people with those interests or with that condition and to share information uh, and to support each other. So that um, whereas people might have been otherwise feeling quite isolated in their situation, particularly if they were not living in a a large metropolis, um, now, wherever they are, they can feel part of a different community. And that creates, I think, uh, different kinds of social cohesion in various ways. S those kinds of groups, of course, will range across the entire ethical spectrum from things like, at one extreme, uh, terrorism, uh, I guess, promoting uh, terrorism, to, at the other extreme, um, giving microloans to uh, extremely impoverished people with an idea for a small entrepreneurial uh, enterprise which, which maybe will help them to get out of poverty in a developing country. 
um, and more or less everything in between those kinds of things. Uh, and then, of course, as we've seen this year, we can uh, rally people for political action in various ways. It's been happening in the Middle East where um, a Facebook uh, page was really important in getting people, encouraging people to come out and work together to protest against the Mubarak regime um, and uh, uh, played, has played an important role in, in other countries in the um, so-called Arab Spring as well. We can also mobilise political opinion around the world in ways that would not otherwise have been possible um, to protest against things that particular governments are doing. For example, against um, the threatened death by stoning in Iran of a woman who was accused of adultery or against the proposal in Uganda to introduce laws that would make uh, homosexuality punishable not only by prison but even by death. Um, and in both of those cases, at least, the, uh, the, the uh, proposed execution of the woman has at least been postponed and uh, the law, uh, proposed law did not go through the Ugandan parliament. Um, at the other extreme, of course, um, since the internet is a tool, it's open to use um, by many people and uh, there are a whole range of scams that are developed on the internet that I'm sure we're all familiar with, um, so it has those possibilities as well. So that's the uh, sort of a, just a, a more or less off the top of my head overview of some of the things that I think are important uh, about the internet. Um, let me say a little bit more about a couple of things, and I'll start with one that I think we'll all agree on as positive, and then uh, consider something that is certainly more controversial. Scholars have long dreamt of the idea of a universal library, uh, a library that would contain all of the knowledge of the world. Um, the idea of the ancient library in Alexandria was uh, supposed to be like that, but certainly since the destruction of that library, um, that's been merely a utopian dream, something that you could never really imagine. Well, um, the internet makes that possible. Um, in fact, uh, it makes something far better than the ancient dream of the universal library uh, uh, would have been because it makes it at least in theory possible and maybe even in, will turn out to be in practice possible to have all of the world's knowledge, all of the world's published books, not just located in one physical setting, which would mean that anybody who wanted access to it would have to travel to that place and then would have to search through the stacks for what they wanted and no doubt some of those books would uh, occasionally be misplaced and lost in such a vast physical collection and uh, uh, would be very difficult to find what you want in it. Um, but it makes it possible to do that in a way in which you could ha have access to it everywhere in the world and many people could simultaneously have access to the same work. Uh, that obviously would be the case if we scanned all of the published books in the world and put them into the internet. And that's a possible thing to do. In fact, uh, Google was coming fairly close to doing that as part of its Google Books project, um, which has been, uh, at least for present, halted by a relatively recent US court decision that said that uh, 
the proposals, the arrangements that Google was proposing to make to copyright holders uh, were not satisfactory, and uh, the court held, in fact, that it was not within the powers of the court to resolve those issues, and they would have to be decided by Congress. This was a a US decision. Um, But uh, even though that's put a halt to that kind of proposal, Uh, There are certainly other ways in which you could go about it. Uh, It's been suggested, for example, by uh, Robert Darton, who's the director of the Harvard University Library, one of the great research libraries of the world, that um, uh, foundations could support this project through public libraries, through those research libraries, um, and uh, essentially at least put all of the works that are out of copyright um, in line in one place. And Many of you will know, of course, there's already a a vast number of works out of copyright that are online, so that um, this laptop that I carry around with me has the complete works of uh, uh, a dozen or two of uh, the great philosophers of the past. Um, So if I move from the United States to Australia, as I regularly do, I don't have to transport uh, books or libraries. I have those that I can refer to anywhere. Um, as well as a lot of uh, more recent works, uh, too, of course. Um, Now, there would still be issues about how you resolve copyright, but I don't think that those are impossible. We have, uh, in this country, a public lending right as an author. I get um, each year a modest amount of money paid into my bank account by the Australian government related to the number of my uh, published books that are in public libraries in Australia. Um, So you could imagine a system which did something similar with regard to an online library. Um, And in fact, it would be easy to track even how often the the works were accessed. So whereas the current Australian public lending rights system only looks at the number of copies of books held in a library, and I get paid the same uh, whether anybody uses those books or not, um, with an online system it would be quite easy to compute whether people were actually looking at them or not and to not pay me if nobody is looking at the the work that I've written. So I think that there there could be schemes that would do that and um, I think it would be great if uh, some countries were to go ahead and legislate for that and because of the nature of the online world, um, it may well be that if one country does it effectively, it becomes available everywhere. Now, that idea, of course, raises one of the big issues about the Internet, and that is questions about copyright, the the ethical question of how we balance the public goods of making knowledge widely available with the individual property rights of the creators or others who hold um, those rights. And there's no doubt that the Internet leads to widespread breaches of copyright um, uh, through... Uh, the convenience which people have of downloading material, whether it's music or books or whatever, that um, is under copyright. Actually, I mentioned to a European colleague recently that I was um, going to be talking about uh, internet ethics. This, by the way, is the first lecture that I've given on this topic. It's relatively recently that I've developed the interest to the point of trying to, to look at the ethical issues involved. And she told me that um, she had had a proposal by a student, a graduate student at her university, who wanted to write a thesis on internet ethics 
and asked her to supervise it. And she said, well, I work in ethics, but I don't know a lot about um, internet ethics, so I'm not sure if I can supervise uh, your work. Um, and he said, well, look, um, why don't you look at the Cambridge Handbook on uh, Information and Computer Ethics? And to make it easy for you, here's a copy attached to my email, which was, of course, a pirated copy. A copy, not a, I mean, at least not, not a legally shared copy. So I guess there was an attitude here by someone who was interested in internet ethics that really the breaches of copyright don't matter. And um, let's just have a, a show of hands about how, who here has downloaded material from the internet knowing or at least suspecting that probably there was a breach of copyright in doing so. And I'll put up my hand to this one too so you don't have to be shy. <laughs> yeah, most of you it looks like, right? So... So it clearly happens, and I guess you think, well, look, I would never go out and buy this work anyway. It's handy to look at it, but um, you know, I'm not that interested that I would go and buy this artist's CD or, or uh, that book or whatever, so I'm not really harming anyone. But um, maybe we're rationalising, maybe we're fooling ourselves, and in at least some cases, we are harming them and we are violating uh, copyright. And it certainly makes a difference. It definitely makes a difference to musicians, for example, um, because sales of recorded music have fallen substantially and uh, a lot more musicians are finding that they need to tour more, they need to give more live concerts because that's a way in which they can make money that the internet cannot impact on in the same way. But um, if books go in the same way as people get more used to reading books on electronic devices rather than in hard copy, uh, what are authors going to do? It's not obvious that going to give a lecture is going to provide the same kind of uh, replacement for the royalty income that it may for successful musicians. Of course, there are various schemes to stop um, illegal copying on the internet, but I'm sceptical that they're going to be effective. I think any kind of patches, they're going to be uh, people who are going to find quick ways of getting around them. And I suspect that the era of reliable protection of copyright uh, is over, at least for anything that can be put in electronic form, and we're just going to have to adjust to a new world. Um, it'll be a better world as far as easy access to information is concerned, but it'll be a worse world in terms of providing a financial return to the creators of these works is concerned. And... Um, that's a problem for some. I mean, I'm not too worried if I didn't get any royalties from the books I publish. I still have an uh, adequate university salary to fall back on. But, of course, there are uh, authors and uh, creators in various fields who don't have that. And that may well be a problem in terms of uh, whether they can continue to support themselves through their creative work. So breach of copyright is a serious ethical concern uh, related to the Internet. But um, there's a much more controversial, serious uh, breach of uh, propriety, if you like, about information that I want to look, a bit, look at uh, in, in some, anyway, as much depth as the time that I have still allows. Um, and that is the WikiLeaks disclosure of uh, a variety of confidential documents. Um, you might remember that uh, late last year, um, WikiLeaks disclosed thousands of diplomatic cables written by US embassies around the world and said that it had a quarter of a million of uh, these cables. 
um, and was going to progressively release more of them. Uh, this caused um, a lot of uh, very violent reaction. In fact, at uh, Princeton, we have something called the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And uh, that, at that school, um, they organized a meeting to discuss WikiLeaks at which they had three uh, US ambassadors or former ambassadors. And all three speakers emphatically condemned the release of the diplomatic cables. They focused especially on the chilling effect it would have on the ability of people to speak the truth to Washington in writing anyway. Um, and uh, they referred to it as um, such terms as saying it was an act of cyber vandalism. Um, they said it had no point to it except to cause maximum damage. Uh, and uh, it basically um, denied that there was any value in what uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange was doing. Uh, Republican politicians uh, called Assange a traitor, which is an interesting statement since, of course, he is an Australian citizen rather than a US citizen. Um, so I can't see how, in any legal sense, he can be a traitor to the United States. And I thought it was also ironic that this meeting took place at the Woodrow Wilson School because uh, you might remember that when Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States, during the First World War, he proposed 14 points for a peaceful resolution or a resolution of the war for a peace treaty to be drawn up after the war, which he thought would be fair and would prevent uh, future wars, provide a basis for preventing future wars. And one of those 14 points was for diplomacy that proceeds, quote, always frankly and in the public view. So you could say, I'm saying you could have claimed that he was being more faithful to the tradition of Woodrow Wilson than those speaking at his school. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton took a similar line, uh, saying, stealing confidential documents and then releasing them without regard for the consequences does not serve the public good. And she uh, rejected the view that governments should conduct their work in full view of their citizens, pointing to, as an example, the negotiations the United States was in with the former Soviet states, uh, former states that were formerly members of the Soviet Union, to make uh, secure the nuclear materials in their possession. And she said, very reasonably, I guess, that uh, you want to keep confidential information about the location of nuclear material that may not be securely stored and guarded. Um, she also claimed that by publishing the cables, WikiLeaks was endangering the lives of human rights activists. Um, I think that she's uh, right that it's not a good idea to make public the location of insecurely stored nuclear materials, but we have to ask, um, firstly, is that relevant to what WikiLeaks uh, released? And the answer to that is no. They have not released any information of that sort. Um, secondly, uh, uh, is it true that they've endangered the lives of human rights activists? There's not, uh, there's not any documented cases uh, of that resulting, although we might, it's possible that it's happened and we don't know about it, but I would guess that the enemies of WikiLeaks would have made it public if they did know about it. Um, and it might also be possible that it's just good luck that it hasn't happened. We can't really know that for sure. Um, but uh, in any case, this is, I think, a small part of diplomacy, and the question is whether indeed 
Um, WikiLeaks has a purpose in releasing these documents um, uh, and what that purpose might be. Um, it's worth looking at some of the other things that WikiLeaks has done before it achieved this notoriety with um, the diplomatic cables. Uh, for example, in 2007, just uh, a couple of months before a national election, WikiLeaks posted a report on corruption commissioned by the Kenyan government but not released by the Kenyan government. Um, that report uh, gained enormous amount of media attention in Kenya in the months leading up to the election, and according to an intelligence report, um, it changed the minds of about 10% of Kenyan voters enough to shift the outcome of the election. Um, we also, I think, have to take account, if we're looking at the impact of WikiLeaks, um, of the impact that it, play, that it had on the developments in Tunisia, which was, of course, the first of the Arab Spring revolutions and therefore uh, the trigger for the subsequent Egyptian revolution, which in turn was the trigger for others. Um, as uh, one Tunisian activist who was involved in um, the uh, revolution in Tunisia wrote... Um, Tunisians knew that their leaders were corrupt. This was not a secret that WikiLeaks revealed to them. But nevertheless, to have a cable, a US diplomatic cable, written from the US embassy in Tunisia, detailing the extent of the corruption of, uh, operated through the presidential family and cronies of the president, um, to have that described in depth, the greed of the presidential family, already mega wealthy, to acquire more, and even to have a statement from the US Embassy that this corruption was making it difficult to um, raise, to improve the economic situation in Tunisia, where unemployment was very widespread, particularly among youths, um, because people were reluctant to invest in a country where so much in bribes had to be paid to the rural family. That, according to this activist uh, writing in The Guardian, um, was an important catalyst for the uprising. So um, if we believe, and certainly um, Hillary Clinton does believe and has said it on several occasions, if we believe that the um, Arab uprisings are a hopeful sign of um, better, more democratic, uh, less corrupt regimes in the Middle East, uh, then I think we have to say, indeed, there was a purpose to uh, this release. Um, and uh, it may turn out to have very good consequences. It's a little too early to say for sure because we don't know what's going to happen, for example, even in Egypt, um, not in Libya either. Uh, so when, if you want to say, is it really a good thing, I'm reminded of the uh, response that was made by the Chinese communist leader, Xu Enlai, uh, when he was asked what he thought of the French Revolution, which of course occurred in 1789, and he was being asked this question um, in the second half of the 20th century, he said, it's too early to tell. Um, so I think we can certainly say the same about the Arab Spring. Um, you could also say that the results of the uh, changed election outcome in Kenya are not unequivocally good. Um, that led to rioting and violence and uh, uh, killed, uh, about 1,300 people were killed. But uh, Asangi has um, said in response um, that 40,000 Kenyan children die every year from malaria alone, 
just one of the causes of high rates of death among children because of their extreme poverty and the fact that they cannot get either the, uh, the, the treatment that they would need to deal with this. Um, and corruption plays a role in keeping them poor. So he's suggesting that um, even if uh, 1,300 people were killed, if this leads to a less corrupt regime and to better government in Kenya, uh, that may be a small price to pay for the number of lives that are saved from it. So um, I think you have to say that there certainly is a purpose behind um, this. And uh, to their credit, at least one conservative Republican, the uh, libertarian Ron Paul, um, has endorsed this. He's said um, in the House of Representatives, or sorry, he's asked um, whether a greater number of deaths have flowed from the WikiLeaks revelation and its earlier predecessor, the Pentagon Papers that were released during the Vietnam War by Daniel Ellsberg, or from the lies that got America into the wars in Vietnam and Iraq and elsewhere? It's a good question. Um, one way of looking at what uh, Asangi was doing is to say that he's trying to answer the question that has troubled political philosophers ever since Plato wrote The Republic and postulated the idea of a guardian class to safeguard the interests of uh, the city-state as a whole. And, of course, that gave rise to the question, who guards the guardians? Well, I take it the WikiLeaks answer is, we all do if we live in an open society where we can actually see what the guardians are doing. And um, that idea of a more transparent government is something that I think we can well welcome. Of course, there are questions about exactly what can be transparent and what cannot be transparent. And I've already given Hillary Clinton's example of the nuclear materials to suggest that there do have to be limits here. And one of the problems, um, I guess, with uh, the openness that um, the Internet makes possible and the ease with which it makes it possible to publish confidential documents is that um, even if WikiLeaks has been, I would say, reasonably responsible, not a perfect record, but reasonably responsible in what it has um, published, there are many other groups already around, uh, groups like uh, Anonymous and there's a Czech group, uh, uh, Pirate Leaks, um, and many other groups, and there's nothing to stop other people forming groups which may be less responsible. Um, so we do live in a more dangerous world, a potentially better world, but a more dangerous world. But I'm not sure what we can actually do about that. So um, I want to make sure we have time for discussion because um, I want to hear your comments on this. Um, let me close with um, looking at questions about... Um, how, who controls the Internet and how can we ensure that the Internet is not controlled and shut down by those who don't want the public to have the possibilities that the Internet makes possible? In Egypt, during the revolution there, the Mubarak regime for a time actually closed down the Internet because it could see that it was being used as a rallying point by activists. Now, there's an enormous cost in doing that. Imagine how society stops when not just activists, of course, but everybody, including, uh, including commerce, um, relies on the Internet for communication. You shut it down, you have a huge dislocation 
uh, and you'll get protests from other parts of the community who may not be activists. Um, but uh, it can be done. Interestingly, it's been uh, made public recently that um, the Obama administration and uh, Hillary Clinton's Department of State itself have been actually working now to help uh, make it difficult for repressive regimes to shut down the internet. Um, they are providing or working on providing alternative systems um, by which activists could communicate with each other even if the government shut down the standard internet system that they've been uh, using. And um, they've actually been promoting training sessions for activists in how to um, protect themselves from official harassment while they organise protests. So, um, ironically, despite her attacks on WikiLeaks, Hillary Clinton, quite recently, early this month, visited one of these training sessions um, set up by the US government in, together with uh, Microsoft, it was in uh, Vilnius in Lithuania, uh, at which they were training activists to um, uh, find techniques for protecting themselves. And she said, um, we have to be willing to keep coming up with new ways of getting over, under, around, and through the walls and other techniques that are used to prevent people from freely communicating. Could have been a, a Julian Assange quote, um, I think, in that. So um, one of uh, having, having said that and having said that I think it's, it's, it's a good thing that we find ways in which we can keep the Internet open and as far as possible we can prevent um, uh, censorship, there clearly are questions about is there a legitimate place for censorship of the internet. Um, uh, our government has been proposing various kinds of censorship and has um, a proposal with the major service uh, providers, with, um, with uh, Optus and, and uh, Telstra, to um, not allow access to, I think, about 500 uh, sites currently on a list uh, which are child pornography sites, and I suppose most people would say, well, that's fine, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that, I think child pornography is disgusting and harmful to children, and uh, I have no problems with the government preventing people from accessing child pornography. That's already a crime, um, and uh, uh, stopping people doing it in this way is simply an effective way of preventing that crime. But the question is, what else might come under this list? On an original list that Stephen Conroy put up of sites that... Um, uh, should be censored or protected, there was also a site um, that was advocating voluntary euthanasia um, and not simply advocating it as a political methodology but um, providing people with information on how they might end their lives if um, they wish to do so. Now, assisting suicide is also a crime in this country but there's a question as to what counts as assisting suicide and whether providing information on uh, ways in which you can safely and uh, surely and um, painlessly end your life is should count as uh, assisting suicide. So I think when you get to that stage, you do get to a point where I would want to say anyway, um, the government is providing a form of political censorship um, of the internet and something that uh, I would want to sharply distinguish from child pornography. So there are there are, I think, a range of difficult questions that we would have to answer if we think that it is at all something that the government ought to be doing and that we can't take the risk of saying that the internet ought to be completely free. 
The final question um, to mention is um, whether indeed access to the internet should be regarded as a fundamental right. Uh, I think as the internet becomes uh, more and more important in our lives and becomes a, such a vital source of information, we might want to amend the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which of course makes no mention of the internet because it didn't exist at the time that was put up, and declare access to the internet as a basic human right, like freedom of expression and uh, freedom of, of thought. If we do that, though, then, as unfortunately is the case with some other human rights, we have to acknowledge that, at least at present, this is not a right shared around the world, not simply because of repressive governments and government censorship, but also because of poverty. So that at present, um, only about 30% of the world's population has access to the internet. Um, and the remaining 70% are blocked out from that, as I've said, amazing tool for learning and communicating with other people. And I think we might start to see this as something that we want to change, as something that can be valuable in development in rural areas. Already it's shown to be valuable for people in quite remote rural villages in developing countries to have um, access to mobile phones because it gives them information, for example, about the prices of commodities that they are growing and selling and they're in a much better position to bargain with local traders if they know what they would get for their product if they were to take it to some place that um, might be some significant distance away um, where they would not want to make the, the, the journey if they did not know that they would get a higher price for their goods. So um, obviously access to the internet in remote areas could also be a wonderful educational and informative tool and I think we might want to see that as something that we want to provide for people in poverty as a means to open up the opportunities to them so that at least in that respect um, they have opportunities not so dissimilar to us. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm looking forward to your comments and questions. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Peter, we've got about uh, 25 minutes for uh, questions and conversation. But I think I might, I might start. Uh, of course, Plato, who you mentioned when talking about the Guardians, had in mind that the Guardians would be excellent people, philosopher kings, so people like you and I might have been in charge, which, of course, not requiring any supervision at all from people like Julian Assange. But that notion about uh, where privacy begins and ends, where confidentiality might be maintained and when instead there should be public disclosure of what exchanges take place isn't just a question, I take it, for governments but also for anybody who exercises power. So I just wonder if you'd reflect a little bit more on uh, where you see those boundaries uh, lying and whether or not you would see Julian Assange um, extending not just into major corporations, you know, the great BHP Billitons or Exxons of the world, but into smaller corner stores and things of like that and having an opportunity to report on all of those things. So where do these boundaries lie? Um, I think the, the boundaries lie uh, where there's a clear public interest in knowledge being available uh, that isn't available now. And by a clear public interest, I don't mean the kind of 
public interest that News of the World would um, deal with. That is, more people will read our papers if we publish this. Um, uh, there has to be a notion of public interest in terms of, of serving a public good more than uh, prurience, curiosity, um, celebrity seeking or whatever. So um, uh, I think that the, uh, either the corner store or the private affairs of individual citizens is generally not relevant. And in an interview, uh, Sangin was asked a somewhat similar question and he gave as an example somebody's personal medical records. Uh, you, know, you might be able to obtain them, but he thought it would be wrong to publish them and, and put them online. I suppose even there, there might be exceptions if uh, someone was in a position of responsibility where um, they could become a danger. You know, maybe if there was a, a pilot flying who had a history of epilepsy and somehow this had been uh, uh, withheld from... Um, those who knew about him. So um, uh, I guess there could be some exceptions. But in general, um, that would be the kind of test that I'd be looking for. With the onus on proof of the person who publishes to show where the public interest is? I think is. so, yep. yes. That's right. Okay. Yes, please. What's the basis for defining what the public interest or public good is and who should be making those decisions? Well, um, the basis for making it, um, as my last example suggested, is, is some aspect of... of serious potential harm, uh, as in somebody who might be unsafe to be a, a pilot or something of that sort, um, or as in the case of uh, revealing corruption in government or, for that matter, corruption in a, a large corporation, um, to uh, get rid of that so that the system can, can operate and, and function as it should. Um, as for who's the judge of that, that's the problem, I guess, with openness. That's that's the risk that we, that we have to take, that, um, as, as Simon said, it, it can only be the person who is actually releasing that information. I, I can't imagine setting up a committee. I, well, maybe I can imagine that you could have a... You, you could present this to some sort of independent jury and say, what do you think? Is this to be released or not? Um, I guess that's a possibility, and, you know, maybe just as... Wikipedia, for example, has uh, groups of people who are um, in charge of disputes, if you like, or will uh, mediate disputes or uh, mark entries as being too low in quality and needing revision. Um, so I suppose you maybe could have an internet peer review body to decide. But of course, once you, once you release something to, um, even if it's a relatively small group, uh, you may get some of those who are disagreeing with the decision releasing it anyway. And uh, the whole point about the internet as a m medium for releasing information is once stuff is out there, it can't really be recalled. Um, that's why the internet makes things like WikiLeaks um, so much easier than the release of the Pentagon Papers was in the days before WikiLeaks, um, you know, when you had vast quantities of paper that could only be released slowly. And uh, now, um, you know, when Julian Assange went to the offices of The Guardian with 250,000 uh, diplomatic cables, um, all he gave them was this, right, um, a, a, a memory stick. Um, so it's, it's and, and, and once, and, and even if, you know, he'd lost that, it was already, it was already distributed in 100 places around the world. So um, that's the, the power of it, and that's why it's actually, I would say, going to be pretty impossible <coughs> to have any kind of controlling body other than the people who have access to it to decide 
whether to release it or not. You've, you've considered the possibility, albeit with qualifications, of some body or bodies that could act as a sounding board for the release of information. Should that extend also to some kind of regulatory function for the use of data which citizens provide when they upload their position, their contact details, their passwords and other things which can be used for commercial and other purposes? Uh, you're right, of course, that, um, that this is an aspect of, of what happens on the internet and it's something that, had I given a, a, a longer lecture, I would have talked a little bit about. I have an article coming out uh, at the end of the month in Harper's Magazine in the United States that talks about some of the things that I did talk about and also about some of these privacy issues. Um, in fact, uh, I, think, I don't think that this is a case where I would want to see some kind of regulatory authority. You could imagine um, a kind of advisory body, but uh, really I think we are consenting to releasing that data when we use Google. Google has a privacy policy. Um, it's on their website. You can go there and find it. Um, and they're telling you what they're doing with your data and how long they store it. Some of this data, for those who don't know, is actually related to your IP address. Um, so it can be, in theory at least, tracked back to you. Um, other data is, is made anonymous. And I think they, they say they currently they destroy the data related to the IP addresses within six months, but they keep the, the rest of it. Um, but I think if, you know, in a, in a sense, in using the internet, we can inform ourselves of these things. Maybe you might say they ought to make that a little more prominent um, when we do Google searches, that they're retaining data. Um, but if you do that and you use uh, Google, then I think um, you're consenting to it. And if there are a lot of people who didn't want that data kept, then you can be sure we would have an alternative search engine. might not be quite as good a search engine as Google, but it would say we keep no data. Um, and they would you know, make money in some other way. Uh, and lots of people would go to that, and Google might then reconsider its, its policies. So um, I think that what's important here is that that information is out there. It's not only uh, Google. It's a whole lot of other companies that operate online, of course, um, that are uh, keeping data. Um, and uh, I think uh, that if the information is there, people can find out what data is being kept and make informed decisions as to whether to allow that data to be kept or not. Um, that's, I think, the only real ethical requirement uh, that you have at, at that point. And, of course, that the policy then be complied with once it's, once it's stated. Some people on the internet disguise their identity or appear as an anonymous individual or sometimes pretend to be someone quite different to who they are. Do you foresee a time where there may be a requirement to be honest in your disclosure of who you are? Uh, yes, that is an interesting question. Um, I just read that uh, there's a proposal in, in Denmark to um, end anonymity um, on the internet, at least for, uh, for Danish citizens. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think you... I don't know. It, has, it clearly has pros and cons, as you say. Um, there uh, are things that people do when they're anonymous that are malicious and um, that uh, we ought to be able to trace them. And perhaps in Denmark you might think, well, this is not a country with a seriously repressive government, um, so that's okay. But um, on the other hand, uh, if you are working in a country that does have a repressive government, um, then anonymity may be a safeguard, uh, a way of protecting yourself 
from uh, harassment. And, and even if you're not, even in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, there can be countries where people are, are not tolerant of certain forms of um, what they might regard as deviance from, from the social norms, and it might be difficult to talk about them and to be open about them, um, and yet you might want to participate in uh, internet forums um, relating to those things. So um, I can see the arguments in both directions, but uh, I guess my thing at the moment is that we should allow people to be anonymous if they choose to be so. Okay, so it's a, a number of elements to this, Peter, uh, to do with the intersection between the ethical requirements of the internet and its users and the law. And I take it that the question's drawing attention to the possibility of there being differences in those laws in different jurisdictions and also perhaps a mismatch between the law and its requirements and the technical standards currently applied. So in this intersection, more generally, do you think which should be giving way, I suppose? Should the internet be attending more to what the law requires or do we need to be adjusting the law? And if so, what's the balance between those two possibilities? Yes, and, and with specific regard to the laws of defamation that you've mentioned, um, of course, the problem is even if you get a judgment in Australia, are you going to be able to enforce that judgment and to get the damages that the Australian court uh, awards you? Um, and that's, you know, that's been a problem um, with defamation suits uh, even before the internet in many cases. And um, you know, it's very been very dubious for, for most people who feel that they were defamed um, whether it was worth taking the action to court or not. I think the internet has um, multiplied that many-fold. And we have a situation that in some ways resembles the, the copyright um, situation. That is that um, the standard ideas of defamation have become unenforceable, uh, partly due to anonymity, certainly, um, but partly just due to the, how complex and costly it would be to try and take action which you may never be able to collect on. And uh, anyway, you know, things can be spread and, and what good is it really doing you? So that, uh, you know, no doubt there's lots of things that people have written about me um, uh, that, are, that are technically defamatory, um, but, you know, they're written in, in blogs all over the place. I certainly wouldn't hold Google responsible um, or even the, the, the hosts, whoever's hosting the websites that the blogs are on, uh, I wouldn't want them to be held responsible because that would put them in an impossible situation and effectively close down um, the kind of free communication that I welcomed. Um, and I think really, in the end, you, you learn to live with it. Um, you hope that uh, the, the truth comes out. Um, it's, it's as with Wikipedia. Um, every now and again, I, I haven't looked at it for a while now, but every now and again I look at what the Wikipedia entry on me says. Um, Sometimes um, it says things that, uh, that are wrong. Um, and once or twice I've been annoyed enough to actually go into it and, and change it myself. Um, but, um, but in other cases I haven't, and when I've come back it's gone anyway. Um, so there are some nice people out there who are saying, well, here's somebody put something in a Peter Singer's Wikipedia entry that um, isn't right, and, and I'll change it. So, you know, you hope that in the huge number of different things that are, that are said, that some of which are defamatory, that uh, somehow or other the truth will, will predominate. Do you leave the compliments that are wrong too? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's broaden it out. So not just copyright, but different forms of intellectual property rights, whether they be patents or copyright or other things, 
can be attached to all sorts of information. And the question, I think, quite rightly, is saying, in some cases, there's an ethical question as to whether or not that intellectual property right should be attached. So how do you think about that in relation to the internet, given that the restriction of access to information or its use may, in some circumstances, lead to a public harm, or the absence of a public good, at least? Yes, and, and there have certainly been um, ethical questions uh, about the type of, of thing that you're talking about, um, independently of the internet, so that uh, I guess the largest case was um, the uh, use of the um, drugs against uh, HIV AIDS. The pharmaceutical companies uh, in developed countries that have produced them were trying to protect their intellectual property, um, and, but the drugs were too expensive for the majority of people who needed them to obtain, and uh, you know, they were trying to prevent the, uh, the, the manufacture of, of cheaper copies of those drugs that could be produced at a price that other people would reach. Um, you know, th and that went through all the World Trade Organization, um, the TRIPS Agreement uh, on Intellectual Property, which does have a clause in it about, uh, I can't remember exactly what it is, public emergencies or public health uh, emergencies. And eventually the, the drug companies gave way and allowed uh, those drugs to be manufactured more cheaply or, or did it themselves in a kind of two-tier pricing system. Um, and I think uh, it was obviously good that they made that decision, that it saved millions of lives. So um, while you want to make sure, again, that um, people engaged in medical research uh, can get some financial return on what they're doing, because... Uh, in those cases, you're talking about the investment of millions of dollars to produce uh, a new drug and get it through the very complicated uh, approval process that um, drug authorities have. Um, uh, so you do want some return. And in that sense, I don't think you can, could simply say uh, we ought not to respect intellectual property on any life-saving medical treatment. I think that would be too sweeping. But you need to think of a different way of doing it, which uh, does provide some sort of financial return, while at the same time enabling people to use that to save lives, um, to make it affordable. And there are a variety of proposals that are around um, to do that, and I think they're, they're specific to particular kinds of, of techniques. Um, but uh, it's worth having a look at some of the proposals around. Okay, so <laughs> the death of prostitution and pole dancing on Sydney Harbour and whether or not the public nature of what the mobile phone camera reveals is making us more or ethical or differently ethical. Well, it, I suppose it's making us different and um, there may be some cases where you regret the inhibition of spontaneity um, because of the awareness of mobile phones and cameras. Um, and other cases, of course, where it has a very salutary effect, um, uh, perhaps in, in reducing crime um, by making it more likely that criminals will be caught. Um, uh, I mean, this part of the general ease of, of videoing, the sort of, you can go back even before the mobile phone camera to um, the beating by uh, LA cops of Rodney King, the African-American, which was just captured by someone with a home video camera who was living nearby across the street. Um, and what would otherwise have been just another, you know, complaint maybe by an African-American that he was beaten by the police, which would basically have been ignored and gone nowhere because I'm sure it had happened a hundred times before, suddenly became a huge 
national media that um, led to uh, substantial damages being paid to King and uh, to different procedures in place for training police uh, and had a, a national effect. So that's the kind of example. That one um, actually didn't go through the internet but, but went through uh, television uh, media. But obviously with mobile phones and the ability to put things on the internet very quickly, it does make a huge difference. And again, it's made a difference um, in some of these um, Middle East uh, uprisings that uh, we've had images of things happening in real time pretty much that uh, we would not have had otherwise. Yeah, they're sort of related. Um, one, one being to do with the fact that on the one hand there's a kind of world the internet's here and therefore we adjust to it. The other part, you know, that we're going to need to have some kind of protective regulation around it. Where do you think that's going to lie and what will be the basis for determining those things? And secondly, do you foresee any possibility that governments themselves might retrospectively, I think, re-evaluate the effect of the internet and introduce a new kind of response to it. Yes, thank you for both questions. Um, uh, you're right to point out that in some cases I've said it's, it's going to happen anyway, it's too difficult to stop, it's not worth the, the battle. Um, and in other cases I've said we need to regulate it. Um, I don't think we will get to the point where we say always it's just going to happen because sometimes the consequences are going to be worth the battle to do something about it. And again, uh, Hillary Clinton's case of um, trying to stop um, the release of information about the location of, of nuclear materials uh, would be an example. And, and there would be other examples where um, you would want to try to stop things anyway that uh, would really have very seriously bad consequences. I'm not sure about things like the child pornography stuff. I mean, that just doesn't seem to me clear enough whether it's possible to stop it, uh, whether we're simply going to have to live with it, whether anyway it's, it's making a difference, um, uh, you know, that is suppress, trying to suppress it on the internet if you can, whether that really makes a difference um, to the amount of it around and the amount of it that gets produced. So I think there's going to be a spectrum of cases and we may move in the direction of saying, look, that's just the world that we're going to have to live in, um, but I doubt that we will go all the way to say that about everything that uh, can happen on the internet. Um, the question about hindsight, would governments have taken a different view? I suppose the answer is it depends which governments. Um, and you can be quite sure, I think, that the Mubarak government would have taken a different view, uh, for example, um, if it had known uh, what was going to happen. Would governments like ours have taken a different view? I hope the answer to that is no, that they would have seen that there's enormous value to us uh, in a variety of ways and, and um, that they would have allowed it. And in fact, if, you know, given that if some governments are allowing it, we think about it, we really would have turned ourselves into a kind of backwater uh, if we did not um, have, uh, have the internet and access to it because it does enable us to participate in world culture in a way that you really couldn't fully uh, if you were not there. And that's why, for example, um, you know, China, although the Chinese government is, uh, I'm sure, puts more resources into censoring the internet than any other government in the world and is very concerned about preventing access to certain sites and to certain ideas, it's never thought of closing down the internet or even of having a China-only internet um, uh, which I guess, you know, you could say China is so big they could just cut off the internet links with the rest of the world. But, but that also clearly would be an economic uh, disaster for them. Um, so they haven't gone that way. They've rather put a lot of resources into trying to selectively prevent access to certain sites. So um, I, I don't really think a, 
a more open Liberal government would have, even in hindsight, said, no, this is not something we want to happen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the allocated time. It's a, a wonderful thing, I think, to have found Peter at this point in his thinking about this topic where his ideas are not yet fully baked because we can hear him thinking about them and evolving them and perhaps addressing questions that you're putting to him where he's still uh, in the process of working through exactly what his response would be. That's, that's a great opportunity to catch you at this point. But my main job now really is to join with you in thanking Peter Singer.